Good evening. I think we're gonna get started. All right, I am Jennifer Gonzalez. I'm the Director of Social Justice here at St. Michael's. So thank you, Mary Caprio, for um, letting us partner with RCA um, to have uh, a guest speaker tonight. Um, and before we get started, I'd like us to open in prayer. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to discuss issues of Catholic social teaching and how we can see them in Hollywood movies. Um, thank you for Jorge for presenting to us tonight. Um, may we all uh, learn great things and may we all have safe travels back home. In your name we pray, amen. amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, so just so you know, after the talk, I believe Mary has a few announcements for her RCA. So if y'all could stick around for a few minutes directly afterward. And we have water and coffee and cookies in the back, so feel free to grab any uh, throughout the talk. Um, so I'd like to introduce Jorge. Jorge Iglesias was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and moved to Houston in 1998. He has two degrees from the University of St. Thomas, a BA in History, and an MLA in English as well as a PhD in Hispanic Studies from the University of Houston. He has taught courses on Spanish, English, public speaking, and film at the University of Houston and Rice University. He is currently a film critic for the Chesterton Review. So without further ado, I give you Jorge Iglesias to present to us on Catholic social teaching in Hollywood movies. Thank you, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Is, it, is this good? Yes. Good volume? Okay, thank you. Uh, well, first of all, um, I would like to... Okay. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you uh, for being here this evening and for letting me join you to talk about a subject that is very dear uh, to me. And the first thing that I wanted to mention is that there will be spoilers in this presentation. Okay, so I hope you have seen the films that we're going to talk about. Uh, and one thing I wanted to, to you know, emphasize is that um, the ending of the film is only a very small part of it. We are used to hearing stories in order to find out what will happen, how they will turn out, and all that. But really, when you think about it, all that goes into a film all the decisions that the filmmakers have to make in terms of characters, in terms of actors, in terms of lighting, scenes, all those things. The ending is really a very, very small part of the story. So uh, hopefully you don't mind if I spoil a little bit you know, of these films for you. Uh, I'm sure you have seen a few of them. So, um, Just wanted to give you an overview of uh, our talk. It's really very simple. There are not many, many uh, topics to them. Basically, we're going to start by looking at why and in what ways film is a very powerful medium and affects our lives, something that I'm sure nobody would dispute, but you know, it's interesting to look at how this happens, in what ways film is very powerful. And then we're going to have a brief um, overview of Catholic social teaching and how these concepts are illustrated in the films that we're going to look at, which are these. At the end, we have time for discussion. That's the most interesting part for me because I already know what I'm going to tell you. But you know, uh, if you have any questions, please—not only questions, but ideas. Okay, that's what I'm interested in. So please write them down. Don't forget them, so that we can all, you know, 
share that and learn uh, from each other. Okay. So, an overview of the first topic, the power of film. These are some things that we're going to be looking at, as you can see here. And we're going to go from the aesthetic type of viewing to the more specifically Catholic way of looking at a film. You know, how do we look at a film as Catholics? What, what does that mean? You know, what do we bring to a film as Catholics? The first topic I wanted to share with you is the uh, reasons for watching films. There are many, many reasons, as you know, why people decide that you know, they're going to spend one hour and a half, two hours, sometimes three hours of their lives with a specific film. I like to think that what I do most is art appreciation. Film is an art, and as such, it can teach us a lot about the human condition. By appreciating art, by looking at a good painting, a good film, by reading a good book, we are basically looking at ourselves in some way or another, right? It's a form of knowing more about the human condition. Cultural and social analysis. It's amazing the many things that we can learn about a culture, including our own, by watching its films. Okay, so I do a lot of this. I watch a lot of foreign films in order to learn more about the world, you know, about distant places and distant cultures that I cannot encounter, uh, you know, in, in person. Critical thinking, this is something that as teachers we emphasize today a lot. We want our students to think about things. It's all criticism, all analysis, right? So critical thinking is another huge um, aspect, another big reason for watching. And I think honestly most of the time what we do is just passive you know, entertainment. We just say we have an hour or two hours to kill, we don't know what to do. A movie is a good way to spend two hours of your life and sometimes you're mad because you know, it doesn't turn out to be a good movie or things like that. And uh, that's why we are so um, angry in those cases because time is a very valuable resource. You know, you can get those two hours uh, of your life back. You can get your money back sometimes, but not the time. So the important thing to keep in mind here is that I think in most cases what we do is a combination of all of these things. You know, hopefully that's what we get from a film. We are entertained, but then we also look at art and we also do some critical thinking about that. This is something that I think nobody will question. Uh, films have a huge impact on our daily lives, right? This is suggested by the fact that we have a ratings system, right? We want to protect our children, we want to protect young people from what they see. That tells you that we really think that film is a very powerful medium. Otherwise we wouldn't have this. We would be like, it's just a movie, you know, just Send, you know, tell your kids to go watch it anyway, who cares? They know that it's just a movie, right? Um, I think we all have stories probably about you know, the first PG-13 movie we watched, the first R-rated movie we watched, and, and things like that. I remember trying to convince my parents to take me to Batman, the one with, um, who was the actor? I forgot. Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, I, I kind of, I can't believe it. It's been a while, so, you know, uh, yeah. So I remember that, and my mother explaining to me, you know, it's not really blood, you know, it's like a tomato sauce or whatever, just uh, <laughs> keep that in mind. So in Argentina, the rating system, we, we had 13, and then we had 16, and then 18, which would be the equivalent of the, uh, of the R uh, rating. And by the way, this system of rating, there's a lot of politics behind it. It's a wonderful topic to uh, do some critical thinking about, you know. Um, the PG-13 uh, rating, for instance, didn't exist until the 80s. You know, before that, it was a jump from PG to R, right? Uh, some of the films that are 
credited usually with changing this are Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was probably, you know, not for kids, but not really an R rating. You know, Gremlins, one of the Gremlins movies had the same thing. Um, many foreign movies are sometimes uh, slapped with an R rating so that less people will go to see them. You know, there's a lot of politics involved here. Um, so that's one thing. I'm sure you have all heard the saying, life imitates art. That's from Oscar Wilde in one of his essays from the 1880s, I think. Life imitates art. Uh, and I'm sure you have had many examples from your life when you thought something that had happened to you or was happening to you, you go like, this seems like a scene from a movie. You know? This is like something I saw in a movie before. Maybe you found yourself in a situation where you knew how to act because you had seen it in a movie before. You know? So we have absorbed this. You know? Cinema has been with us for more than 100 years now. So we are influenced by it in this way. In the 19th century, people were influenced in this way by novels. You know, everybody was reading novels, they didn't have the cinema. Now we are influenced by the cinema, and sometimes we imitate it. You know? To give you, uh, you know, an awful uh, example, I'm sure everybody remembers this. When uh, The Dark Knight Rises premiered, there was a, an awful incident in Aurora, Colorado. Right? There was a shooting, a young man killed, 12 people injured 70 people in uh, an act that was somehow reminiscent of the techniques that the Joker uses in The Dark Knight Rises. So, you know, an awful incident. Filmmakers, artists, sometimes don't think about these things. They think about profit. But we have to ask ourselves, if I'm an artist, the work of art that I'm making may influence people to do things that are not good, you know, and may cause a lot of harm in society. So, you know, it's very important to, to remember that. When The Passion of the Christ uh, came out, a young man here, I think it was in Fort Bend, confessed to a murder because he was inspired by watching this film. This guy had basically gotten away with a murder. The authorities, uh, he made it look like a suicide. And the authorities bought that. He watched this film and he was so moved by it that he decided to go and turn himself in. So movies have that power too. The last story that I have is, uh, I, I'm not sure if this is actually true. I got this from the uh, trivia section for Robocop from imdb.com. Uh, Apparently, there was a criminal who was running away from the police, a thief. Okay? And in order to run away, he got into the theater where they were showing Robocop. And the guy became so engrossed by watching the film that the police were actually able to catch him. Once again, I'm, I don't know if this is true. Uh, it's on the IMDb uh, website, and you can read it there. I tried to look it up. I could not find the sources, because this is, we're talking 1987, right, that this movie came out. So uh, I have no trouble believing it, though. This is a very powerful movie. It really grabs your attention. Uh, it's an allegorical movie, too. I think the filmmaker, the director of this film, said that in the story of Robocop, he had in mind the resurrection, right? This is a policeman who is killed, comes back to life as a robot, you know, kind of a postmodern version of, the, of a resurrection. But I have no trouble believing that story. One, because it's a very powerful film, and, and two, because some, you know, some criminals are kind of silly, you know? So I, I wouldn't be surprised if this actually happened to, to a guy. Very briefly, some thoughts from, from some critics. I'm sure you have all heard of Roger Ebert, one of the most famous film critics, uh, and the first one to win a Pulitzer Prize, I think, in the 70s. Okay? 
he said something that sounds very simple, but that, I'll try to this. something that sounds very simple, but that I think we tend to forget. Good films make us better people, for the same reason that good art makes us better people, good literature makes us better people. We educate our spirit through these things. Art is very important to us. We are moved to, to create art uh, naturally, you know, from, from very early ages. Then I always make reference to Father Daniel Callum, my uh, friend and mentor. He was the previous film critic for the Chesterton Review, and he's one of the editors of this uh, journal. Two years ago, he published this book that compiles his film reviews, 38 of them in total. A Catholic Goes to the Movies. He makes many, many important points in this book, but I wanted to mention four of them. We tend to forget that every message has a purpose, right? And he says the main purpose of film is persuasive. Films are always trying to persuade us of something, right? This is something to keep in mind. I don't want to go into a deep discussion of this right now, but keep this in mind as we look at the films. Films are also our modern folklore. Okay. In days of old, people knew the myths, okay? the fables of Aesop, things like that. All those were the stories that all, uh, you know, most human beings shared. They knew them, they uh, knew their morals and all that. Today, you're more likely to connect with people through film. You know? I, it happens to me all the time when I'm teaching. I say something and one of my students say, oh, that's like in that movie, so-and-so. You know? They're always telling me that. We are all, you know, uh, connected through the films that we see, especially if we're always looking for the last film that came out, you know, that kind of thing for popular films. Then, um, <clears throat> something that may seem obvious, every film implies a worldview, okay? Even the most mindless film you can think of, you know, the, I don't know, horror movies like Friday the 13th or something like that, there is a worldview implied there. And that is one of the things that we look for as critics, right? What is this film trying to, to say? What is the worldview that is uh, conveyed by this film? And of course, sometimes this, this happens uh, not at the conscious level, right? The people who are planning the next Friday the 13th movie right now, because there will be another Friday the 13th movie, you can be sure of that, uh, are not thinking, how does this you know, scene, how does this death convey our worldview here? It's, it's, it doesn't happen like that, but if you look at it uh, in total, uh, you can, you can you know, derive the, the worldview that is being shown. Another interesting observation, um, if you take the most liberal, the most, you know, morally awful film that you can think of, most of them have a very traditional structure. It's basically the typical pyramid. You know, you have exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and then one. Most movies are going to follow that structure. Okay, so even morally relativistic films, they still have, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Sometimes not in that order. But that traditional structure is most of the time there. Every now and then a filmmaker comes along and says, let's make a movie without a plot, you know, or let's make a movie without characters. Sometimes that works, you know, and we can see those movies and be refreshed. But most of the time, all they remain is experiments, right? Interesting experiments, but just experiments. Most movies are going to follow the typical structure. Most movies in that way are uh, pretty conservative. Something we do as Catholics a lot is to go into allegorical reading and the different levels of interpretation. Okay, this is the way we read scripture. This is the way we read some works of art, uh, like Dante's Divine Comedy. We can do the same with film, okay? And this is what we do. Just to give you an example of uh, these things from scripture. So you have, at the literal level, you can have something like 
the exodus of Israel from Egypt, right? That's the story. A group of people went, uh, moved out of Egypt. At the allegorical level, we can say that is an allegory of our redemption in Christ, right? Coming out of slavery. Moving to the moral level, it basically tells you that the soul can be converted from a state of sin to a state of grace. That's the morality behind it. And then the anagogical level is the most complicated. It's when you apply all these things to uh, the soul's salvation. In this case, you would say, when the soul moves from a state of sin into a state of grace, it is free. It, it attains freedom. It is saved. Right? So applying it to salvation, that's basically what anagogical means. Every type of interpretation that we make is a form of appropriation. Okay? We are making the topic, making the work of art our own. We sort of read ourselves, in a way, into the text. Uh, you all know what Catholic means through uh, the etymology of the word. It means universal. So, you know, we encompass everything, even something like film. Uh, nothing is really foreign to, to our faith. And we have a long tradition of using secular sources, such as films. You know, the films that we're going to talk about today are secular. They're not, you know, Christian films, Catholic films. And we have this long tradition of using secular sources and appropriating them in order to make a point. St. Augustine used sources from the Neoplatonists, Plotinus, right? He appropriated that. He you know, took it as a source and then made it useful for our faith. Same thing with St. Thomas Aquinas, who is often credited with Christianizing Aristotle. Right? The number of, time he, number of times he quotes Aristotle throughout his work is just amazing. He is taking something secular you know, appropriating it and making it um, Catholic, right? Moving on to the role of the Catholic critic, something that helps us when it comes to cinema is that we are not afraid of images. Okay? Other faiths do not like images for valid reasons, right? When you have an image, it's very easy to fall into superstition, you know, and that kind of thing. But we embrace images. And this is one thing that I ask you to consider. We have uh, stained glass images sometimes telling a story right, in our uh, churches. Right? Originally, as you know, this was meant as a way to teach people who were not able to read the story that was being you know, told. Stories from the life of Christ, stories from the lives of the saints, and all that. Uh, the same thing happens with the Stations of the Cross, the Via Crucis, which is something that we do a lot during Lent, too. We promote this. right, and. I'm sure you know what I'm going to suggest here. Basically that here we have a primitive form of a movie. Right? We're basically looking at different scenes taken together. They form a sort of movie here. It's a, it's a primitive sort of uh, film. We also apply our worldview as Catholics when we look at films. Okay? This is something that does not necessarily come with being a Catholic. It's something that we have to develop, that we have to nurture. Okay? How do we do that? How do we acquire a Catholic worldview? By living our faith, by studying our faith, by praying, you know, all of those things that we do. They all go together to nurture this worldview. And this is what we bring when we read a film as Catholics. And of course, as I mentioned before, something that is very important for us is allegory. And whenever we read a work of art as Catholics, what we are thinking of is basically the story of salvation, right? So that's. Uh, Another thing to keep in mind. 
Before we look at the movie specifically, I wanted to give you in just two slides some general concepts of Catholic social teaching, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. What is social teaching? Something that you have to be very careful with is if you go online and just Google social justice, okay? Just social justice by itself. You're going to read, you know, social justice is, consists in um, you know, promoting all of these views. And you're going to find a lot of stuff there that is not really in accordance with the teachings of the Catholic Church. So be very careful with the term social justice. One of the first encyclicals, there was one, uh, another important one before that we're going to look at uh, later. From 1931, Quadragesimo Año, by Pope Pius XI. 40th year, it's called 40th year because it's the 40th anniversary of an anniversary of another important encyclical we're going to mention uh, soon. And he emphasized these three things. These three things that were important, a living wage, okay, subsidiarity, and the fact that social justice is not uh, you know, a state of public affairs, but a personal virtue. It's something that we have to nurture ourselves. We cannot be forced to be you know, socially just. It's something that we cultivate, like all other virtues. I guess the opposing bias would be something like narcissism. Here's the goal, according to Pope Pius XI, to improve the common good of a free and responsible people. Once again, it is something that has to be born of us, you know, freely, right? And the focus is on the family. This is his main, uh, his main point here, the point of departure. If the family doesn't work, society is not going to work properly either. It's the basic social uh, unit. So here you have, just so you know, um, seven main themes that are mentioned when it comes to social uh, teaching in the Catholic Church. If you look it up, if you Google it, this is what you're going to uh, come up with. Some uh, sources cite 10 of them. If you go to the uh, US Conference for Catholic Bishops, this is what you will find there, these seven themes. Okay? Keep them in mind as we look at the films because all of this is interconnected. Okay? All of this is interrelated. It's, it's kind of like, you know, that's why we have these seven themes, and that's kind of like a unit. The first film is Children of Men. How many of you have seen this film? Okay, great. So this is a, uh, a British film also. Okay. So uh, it came out in 2006, and here you have basically the state of affairs that the movie portrays. Okay, it's a futuristic film, 2027. 20, uh, people are sterile. As the movie begins, the youngest person alive is killed. Okay, so it's a, it's a huge thing. Our society goes into mourning because this is the last child that was born. Uh, Britain is the only country that is functional, so naturally everybody wants to go there in order to work, in order to find you know, and build a good life for themselves. There are uh, rebel groups, activists, okay? And uh, there's a state of siege, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the police are everywhere trying to control the situation to keep the people you know, from, uh, from revolting and stuff like that. Terrorist attacks are a daily thing. You know, you're just walking down the street and all of a sudden something blows up. It's, you know, it's normal. It happens all the time because of the activists who want things to change. Immigrants are kept in cages like the ones you see here. They're also evicted sometimes. From their, from their homes because they do not have the proper documentation to be there. The story focuses on this man, Theo, 
that name is very, very symbolic, as you can tell, the Yoga God, right? He uh, used to be an activist, but he became cynical, you know, and he's just trying to, uh, to make the best for himself at the moment. His wife, who is still an activist, contacts him and asks him to protect this girl, who is an immigrant, right? a refugee. At one moment in the story, he realizes that the girl is pregnant. Okay, so this is a huge thing. People are sterile. All of a sudden, this young woman turns up who is uh, pregnant. So it's hope, right? We have hope. And she is a refugee. So there are two reasons why he has to protect her. She's in trouble because she does not have the proper documents, and she is pregnant. Her name is Key, K-E-E. -E. And she is the key to you know, humanity's uh, survival. So very symbolic film. At one point, when Theo asks her, uh, who is the father of the child? She tells Theo, I'm a virgin. And of course, she's kidding, right? She says, I have no idea who the father is. But we have a story here of, you know, sort of like Mary and Joseph trying to, you know, escape. So I'm going to show you a little clip uh, here. And um, it shows basically the scenes that deal with immigration. I'm going to do my best to censor this clip because there's a little incident of you know, the uh, F word there. I'm going to do my best to, to silence it. But uh, if I can't help it, you know, just cover your ears. Day 1000 of the Siege of Seattle. The Muslim community did Demands an end to the army's occupation of mosques. The Homeland Security Bill is ratified. After eight years, British borders will remain closed. The deportation of illegal immigrants will Thank you. 
It's uh, pretty bleak, right? If you look at the color palette, gray colors, right? Very, very dark. It's an apocalyptic film, so sort of like The Road, another film that has a lot of dark colors to, to it. Um, brief information before we move on to, to the next uh, film on what the church says about uh, the subject of immigration. This is the other important document that I mentioned before that um, many consider to be the foundational text of Catholic social justice. Okay, so the document I mentioned before was called Quadragesimo Año, 40th year, because it came out 40 years after this one, which is the important one. The subtitle is, uh, oh, by the way, Rerum Novarum of new things, okay? New issues, new topics here. So that's why it's foundational, Pope Leo XIII. Rights and duties of capital and labor is the subtitle of this document, and it equally rejects, it rejects socialism, and unrestricted capitalism. Okay, so we have to find a middle way here. It recognizes the uh, right of labor to form unions, and another thing that it does is to defend private property. Okay, so very important issues at the time. In 2001, the US Conference of Catholic Bishops put out this um, document here, Welcoming the Stranger Among Us, or uh, Unity in Diversity. Three main rights that it recognizes. The right of people to migrate, the right of a nation to control its borders, and the fact that in controlling those borders, a nation should exercise justice and mercy. Okay, so, once again, very difficult, right, to enforce these things. Who decides what is justice, what is mercy? As Catholics, we know, but, you know, um, that's one thing that uh, we expect from, from governments. Now, in the film, of course, the character here who, that we have to follow is uh, Theo. Okay, he is the one who shows this concern for human life by protecting both the immigrant and her child. Okay, so it's doubly there. And he came from you know, a very cynical perspective to do this. So he is basically exemplifying uh, these um, you know, virtues, being socially conscious right, and protecting this girl. The movie, by the way, ends on a very positive note. That's, that's all I'm going to say. So it is bleak, but go watch it because it's really a life-affirming film. Many bleak movies are life-affirming, actually. Uh, a couple of, well, actually, something like a year ago, I reviewed Blade Runner 2049. I don't know if you have seen that, the, you know, the second part of the Blade Runner movie, which came out in 1982. Once again, you know, kind of a dark movie, but I was surprised by what I found in terms of the affirmation of life and, and the dignity of human life. Amazing, amazing content there. Erin Brockovich is the second uh, film that we chose. The events of the film, the lawsuit, how many of you have seen this? Probably uh, more than, than Children of Men. This was very popular when it came out. Julia Roberts actually got the Academy Award for Best Actress for this film. Uh, the lawsuit took place uh, between those years, 93 and 96. Uh, a company, Pacific Gas and Electric, was uh, polluting the groundwater 
Okay? And that happened during the 50s and 60s, as it says here, causing great you know, damage to uh, the health of the people living there and their children. So this was a huge case. Hinkley, California, I understand, after this became uh, sort of a ghost town, at least for, for a while, okay, because of this uh, problem. Erin Brokovich, single mother of uh, three kids, as you can see here, she cannot find a job. She's always rejected because she doesn't have a specific, you know, uh, I guess, you know, ability. One day she goes to a lawyer's office when she gets tired of being rejected and basically says, give me a job, okay? He says no at first, but one day she shows up and starts working just like that. Initially she was doing a filing job, okay? So it was a very simple thing until she started looking at some of the documents that she was filing and realized that there was a very important case involving this uh, pollution of the groundwater. And she decided to go and do something about it, okay? She went herself to get evidence uh, of the contamination of the water and convinced the firm's lawyer, Ed Masry, to go against the uh, corporation that was doing this. She sat with the people who were affected by the problem, listened to their stories. The movie shows her remembering all the details from you know, basically all the stories, or most of them. I don't know how true that is, but the point is she sat down with the people and talk to them. By the end of the film, this is where she is. She's a millionaire when they win uh, the lawsuit, okay? So she went from having no job to uh, this. Now, uh, I think this is a good movie to point out that there are many, many filters that we can use to look at films as Catholics. One of them is the moral filter. That's not what we're doing right now, okay? There are many things about Erin Brockovich that can be criticized, okay? Uh, about Erin Brockovich, the character, by the way. This is based on a true story, but it's still a movie, okay? So uh, what we're looking at here is social justice. And basically, uh, it's the care for the environment that we want to look at for Erin uh, Brockovich. And a key document is this one right here by Paul VI in 1971, Octogesima Adveniens, 80th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. Okay, so we're still working on that initial document. Uh, he pointed out these two things, the risk of destroying nature and the idea that the framework is no longer under our control. Okay, so we need to change things because if we keep doing things the way we are doing them, this is 1971, um, we're not going to get anywhere good. Uh, St. John Paul II in 1991, centesimus annus, 100 years once again of Rerum Novarum. So we're still you know, looking back at that um, at that document, said we should limit the waste, okay? And uh, he also made the connection between the gift of the earth and the gift of ourselves. We are part of creation, right? We are part of the ecosystem. It's not that, you know, one thing is on one side and then the other thing is on the other. In 2009, Pope Benedict XVI pointed out something very, very important, especially when you think about some of the uh, activist groups when it comes to the environment. Nature is important, but it's not more important than human life. Okay, that's something that we always have to keep in mind. Um, and this is what he said. I quoted this uh, you know, textually because I thought it was, it was great. It is contradictory to insist that future generations respect the natural environment when our educational systems and laws do not help them to respect themselves. It begins with education, right? That is the key thing here. Laudato Si, uh, you may have heard of this because it was a big issue. Uh, came out recently, is basically the culmination of the 
church's teachings on uh, caring for the environment, caring for our common home. Okay? And these are some of the points that Pope Francis makes. We are not God. Okay? The earth has been given to us. It's a gift. Okay? And, sorry. Everything in the ecosystem is interconnected. Okay? So it's kind of like a domino effect. If something fails, everything else is going to be affected. It's like a butterfly effect, pretty much. Care for the poor is something that we're going to look at with the following film. But it's also important in the sense of the environment, because many times people who are living in poverty are affected because of the way we treat the environment. They live in areas that have been you know, uh, mistreated in, in the environmental sense. He also talks about climate change and how we need to change our lifestyle if we want to you know, improve the, the state of affairs. Global solidarity has to do with making sure that the laws and the regulations are you know, for the whole world, not just for one economy or for one country. This affects everybody. You know? And the very important thing that he mentions is the fact that we are often led to think that there's nothing we can do in order to change the environment. The, the, the damage has been done already. You know? What can we do? I mean, just by recycling, I'm not going to change the whole world, right? That's what he wants us to challenge. The fact that there is hope. Okay? We can do something about uh, the state of the environment and we can change things. You know? Looking back on the film, as I said before, there are many things about Erin Brockovich, the character that you can criticize. Uh, her way of dressing, her way of talking. That's why I'm not showing you any clips from the movie because it's virtually impossible to show you, you know, a clip without hearing some colorful language. So uh, that's why I left that out. But in terms of the environment, she has that conscience. She did get something out of helping, you know, the people there. She became a millionaire. She got paid for it and all. But uh, she is still showing that concern for the environment. This is a recent film, 2017. Has, has anybody seen this film? No? It's an independent film. So yes, we are talking about Hollywood films, but I put this here in order to have some contrast, okay? The Florida Project, it basically shows you what life is like for people who are living in motels. The next step is basically the street. Okay? So they live in motel rooms, families together. Okay? And um, the film focuses on this little girl, Mooney, and her single mother. Okay? It does have a plot, but basically what it is is a series of episodes. So it's an episodic film. And the filmmaker came from uh, a background in documentary. So you can see that when you watch the film. He's trying to show you something more real. I think if you can say that Erin Brockovich is based on a true story, this movie is based on hundreds of true stories. Okay? For most people, it's not just a matter of going into an office and saying, give me a job. Okay? And this is what this movie shows. How difficult it is for some people to find a job and to get out of that vicious cycle of uh, poverty. At the end of the film, we find out that this is happening within walking distance of Walt Disney World. So I thought that was a very interesting contrast. Okay? This place where it's great to be a kid, you know, this magical place where dreams come true and all that. And within walking distance, you have people living in this uh, situation. Compare the color palette here with the one in uh, Children of Men. Okay? Here you see a lot of bright colors. You have the rainbow, the motel is pink. This is Mooney and her mother. Her mother is, uh, 
she's not doing much in order to get out of the situation she is in. Okay? The film shows that there are other people living in the same situation as her, as she is, who try to get out of it, try to make the most of it. The point I'm trying to make is the film does not say we are a product of our environment. That would take away our freedom, okay, our free will. So it does not say that. It just shows this case here of this uh, of this lady who is, you know, kind of lost. Mooney and her friends grow up pretty much in a wild state. They can do whatever they want. They just walk around and all that. No guidance whatsoever. The mother is not a very good example, to say the least. And the important character to keep in mind in this movie is the one played by William Dafoe, uh, Bobby. He is uh, the manager of the motel, but he basically does all the jobs. If something needs to be painted, he goes and paints it. If an appliance needs to be you know, repaired, he does that. He's a guardian angel to Mooney because he realizes that her mother is not really doing much in order to raise her. Uh, here you can see Mooney's mother taking a picture of her. Uh, a building is on fire, right? And they go running to see it. They say, this is a lot better than television. And she takes a picture of uh, her, her daughter with the burning building in the background. The girl does not look very happy because what her mother doesn't know is that she and her friends set the building on fire. Okay, so very, 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 you know, it's sort of comic in a way, but um, very sad uh, story there. Let me show you the trailer for this. No foul language on this one, so we're okay. Hey, does anyone have a charger? We're dying. If you're tired of charging, plugging in, dying, you Chromebook.
so that gives you an idea of what uh, this movie is, is like. Um, as I said before, what I like about it is that it doesn't show people being a victim of their, their environment, okay? But let's look at some facts here that we, uh, you know, tend to not think about because our society is so compartmentalized that sometimes we, we don't really come into contact with these things. These are the poverty thresholds and this is what is uh, considered to be poverty. Um, so basically if you're making less than 12,000 uh, a year for one person that is considered to be poverty. So the threshold doesn't really tell you much because you think well you know even 20,000 a year that's that's you know that's very difficult. So there are people actually living on um, you know on, on these amounts of money. This I thought was was shocking, you know, to think that 6.7% uh, of the population live in deep poverty. That means that they're making about, you know, half of the poverty threshold. 21.3 million people, that's like the population of Florida, actually. And 95 million people living close to poverty. Unfortunately, for many of these people, the situation does not get better, you know. It's, you know, it's a, a dangerous situation. Um, this uh, information, this information, by the way, is from povertyusa.org. It's divided into, you know, um, gender by age, 15.3 million kids, you know, almost one in every five. I thought that was, that was shocking, you know, I had no idea of these uh, statistics. Separated also by ethnicity. Okay. What does the church say about this? Uh, Pope Francis published a very important document, Evangelii Gaudium. It talks about many different things, okay, the joy of the gospel. But uh, he addresses four issues that I would like to, to mention when it comes to poverty. He talks about the challenges of today's world, and he says no to all these things, no to an economy of exclusion, no to the new idolatry of money, no to a financial system which rules that rather than serves, and no to the inequality which spawns violence. The main idea here is that the system should work for human beings and not the other way around, right? Another point he makes, and these are the references, just in case you want to uh, look it up in the document, about the distribution of income. I put these quotes here, because I thought they were important. As long as the problems of the poor are not radically resolved by rejecting the absolute autonomy of markets and financial speculation and by attacking the structural causes of inequality, no solution will be found for the world's problems. Inequality is the root of social ills. We can no longer trust in the unseen forces and the invisible hand of the market. This is something that we have to, you know, uh, take action ourselves. And he reminds us that economy is, in his words, the art of achieving a fitting management of our common home. That's something we, we tend to forget, I think. Economy, that eco is the same as in ecology, right? From the Greek oikos, which means home. The third point is concern for the vulnerable. This is once again Pope Francis. The current model with its emphasis on success and self-reliance does not appear to favor an investment in efforts to help the slow, the weak, or the less talented to find opportunities in life. We are educated with this idea of self-made men, right? The Pope reminds us that none of us is self-made. You know, we don't make ourselves. We, you know, we, we owe everything to, to God. He mentions these groups specifically, okay, the homeless, the addicted, refugees, indigenous peoples, the elderly, migrants, 
victims of human trafficking, mistreated women, and uh, the unborn. He makes a you know a lot of this encyclical is devoted to that, and also creation as a whole, the whole uh, environment. And the final point is the common good and peace in society. By the way, as I said before, these are not all the topics that he touches upon in the encyclical. These are just some main issues that I wanted to emphasize and share with you. Time is what we work with. Okay? We should not let anything stop us. We are still on time. There, there's, you know, we haven't run out of time for anything. That is, uh, time is part of the human condition and this is what we use in order to find solutions. It's what we do with this time that matters. We have many differences you know, among cultures, but unity is always more important. That's another point he makes. Realities are more important than ideas. Okay? When uh, making, when you know, achieving something or when bringing about change becomes a political thing, that is a huge obstacle because we tend to give more importance to something as an idea and not uh, as a reality. And finally, something that goes back a little bit to that point about unity, the whole is greater than the part. You know, you've heard it, uh, two brains think better than one, and so forth. Um, let's move on to the last film, okay? I, I was surprised, but I realized that there's not much of a plot to The Dark Knight. How many of you have uh, seen this one? There bit, okay. It's basically, you know, Batman trying to stop the Joker, who uh, uses anarchistic um, tactics, right, in the fight of good versus evil. Two of the important questions that this movie raises are here. Do the ends justify the means? And is anyone, in this case Batman, for example, beyond good and evil? When one of the moments in the movie, one of the characters says, this is a democracy, criticizing Batman, right? Because Batman thinks that he is you know, somehow above good and evil and has this ability to you know, take justice into his own hands. And as you know, there are many connections between Batman or between Bruce Wayne and the Joker. Okay, we can talk about this later. I would like to show you uh, a scene here, maybe the most important one from this film. It's a social experiment carried out by the Joker, the famous boat uh, scene. So let's look at this and um, we will hear your ideas afterward. <coughs>
are you all going to be a part of the social experiment? I'm blue walls high, high. Let me come in over. Okay, so great scene. The, the ending is not there, but basically, you know, nobody pushes the button. They, they decide to just, you know, not do that because every single life is important. Uh, the life of people who are in jail, the life of people who are not 
So that is the, uh, the, the end result. Then Batman asks the Joker, what were you trying to prove with this experiment, that everybody is as ugly as you? You're alone. You know, there are people in the world who are good and who respect uh, human life, no matter what the circumstances. And people are willing sometimes to die in, in things like, like this for, for others and for justice. So, um, keep that scene in mind. I don't have much to say about the Batman um, experiment because I would like to hear what your ideas are. This goes with the concept of, you know, is it um, allowable to do something wrong for a good cause? All those, those ideas that we can discuss if, if somebody uh, wants to bring that up. Some conclusions that I have for you. What we get from a film is directly related to what we bring to it. Okay, as Catholics, we have a lot to bring to a movie. Some, some things that other viewers will not get from, from these films, you know. But we have a worldview that basically allows us to, you know, get a lot from a film. Our worldview is a lens through which we see the world, okay. Uh, you can use a lens to see things clearly, more clearly, you know. And that is the way uh, it basically works for us. But it also works as a frame. We need a frame, because otherwise the world and the reality around us is chaos. God does not need a frame, but we do, because we would go insane if we didn't have that, that frame that we put uh, to things. That is what our, our Catholic worldview is. It's a frame. It's also a frame that we use in order to make sense of the world around us that is beyond you know, uh, our comprehension. I uh, like to think of my life as a film, okay? This is something that I, that I did a long time ago. I started seeing my life as, as if it were a movie. And I thought, this is my movie and I am the main character here and all the people around me are secondary characters. But then I realized that the people around me were not acting like secondary characters. They were acting like protagonists too, you know? It wasn't just about me. So I thought, this is very interesting, but how does it work if we are all the protagonists of this movie, if we all think of ourselves as the main character. Well, it does work because if this is God's movie, this is a very vast and exuberant movie, like everything that God does. And it gives us the opportunity to, each one of us, be the protagonist. This camera that is making this film can see everything. It's not you know, confined to one scene, but to the totality of creation. So that's another thing that, in which it differs from other uh, films. It also covers all genres. You know, sometimes we're living in a comedy, sometimes we're living in a drama. All genres are covered in, in this movie of existence. And there are also no cuts. It's a movie made in one long take, right? From the beginning uh, of creation to the very end. But I think the most important thing about this movie of life is that there is no script. We don't have a piece of paper telling us what to say or how to act in a given situation. The director of this film gives us complete freedom. He says, use your talent, okay? Use your talent as a performer. This is the situation that you have. This is the role that you're going to play. Just do your best with it. And you may ask, how am I going to do that if there is no script? How will I know what to say? How will I know what to do and how to act? The director gives us guidelines. We have the commandments to know how to uh, act in, in this film. We can also look at other people who have come before us and have done a good job as actors. 
Some of them were not very good actors at first, but they cleaned up their act. Think of St. Augustine. He was not a very good actor at the beginning. Okay? Same thing can be said of St. Paul. Others are naturals. St. Dominic Savio died when he was 14 years old. Uh, St. Maria Goretti was 11 years old when she was martyred. These are naturals. Okay? They seem to come with this ability to, uh, to act. But um, we basically live in the hope that we are going to make uh, and give a good performance. That is my hope, at least. I hope that I am doing the best with the role that has been given to me. And I think we all share this hope that we are going to, you know, one day when God tells us, those were your scenes, you know, you're out of the movie now, that he will tell us, you did a good job, that was a good performance, you know, and that we'll get an award for that. Not the Academy Award, because that's, that's nothing but politics, but a really good award, which is being in the presence and finally seeing the great director of this movie, this you know, wonderful and you know, illimitable movie that, that is life. Uh, that's basically all I have for you. So thank you so much for your uh, patience and your time. And now, as I said, uh, I would really like to hear your ideas, maybe about the films that we talked about, maybe about other films, if you want to share your experience as a Catholic viewer, uh, anything at all. Yes? This is more of an aside, but it was refreshing to see the boat scene in mm -hmm. the Batman movie. I honestly don't remember how it ended up. Um, right. But what's interesting is back in the 1960s, Mm -hmm. psychologist from Yale, Stanley Milgram, uh -huh. he conducted what's been referred to as a seminal shock experiment, okay. where he had a subject in a booth, right. and they had people in, in little sound booths, and the, the thing was, the subject would ask questions, and the person answering it from the sound booth would intentionally give the wrong answer. Oh. You know it was wrong, but it was, it was a wrong answer. Right, and right. Each, for wrong, each wrong answer, the subject had a shock. Had to, had to give a lethal shock to the person in the sound booth. Right. And what's so amazing is how eagerly the people shocked others. Or thought they were. They really didn't, but they thought right. they were. Right. And right. it's such a nice contrast to see the boat scene where they let these people live. Yes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, of course, you know, uh, some situations bring out the worst in people too. This is a very hopeful uh, scene, you know, which I'm glad because Usually, you know, we, we're accustomed to seeing bleak things and bleak endings and stuff like that. So that's a good example. That's a great example of this uh, shock that people thought they were, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is. But, you know, this is very, very hopeful in that, in that sense. Yes? That is, that is very, it, it is very common, you know, and um, I think usually what I try to do is to focus on the allegorical level of the film, 
So in some cases, I don't even have time to go into, or space in this case, since I you know, write for the Chesterton Review, uh, it's a matter of space more than time, to go into the acting. Uh, I'm a very, very positive you know, viewer, reader, or whatever. So usually what I do is I feel like I have so much more to say about something that I enjoy at every level that I tend to stick with those with those uh, films. But uh, if a film has good intention, but in the practice maybe it's not, you know, up to to that standard, I think that has to be mentioned. You know, we cannot turn a blind eye on on uh, you know poor acting or or things like that. So uh, I usually you know mention that with quite a bit of tact, just to you know to avoid. Um, but but you're right. It's it's a very it's very difficult to separate both things, and rarely do we find a movie that is great at every single level. You know, um, that's uh, something to mention from from what you said. Is these are secular movies, right? But we have a lot of Catholic, you know, very very good Catholic movies. You know that that you can look at. So uh, I wanted to focus on the secular ones to show you that even there we can find you know um, all these. Yeah. Right. Right. And without knowing it, you know, I'm I'm sure that many of these filmmakers didn't have these ideas when, you know, when they did that. And then you also encounter a lot of uh, films made by by liberals, but that portray the church in a very good light. Have you has anybody seen Lady Bird? Uh, Lady Bird. It's uh, about a girl who goes to a Catholic school. That film is made by people who are liberals, but. It's it's made in a good way and shows you know the church and you know Catholic schools in a in a positive light. It's basically the story of the prodigal son, but it's the prodigal daughter in this case. I highly recommend that movie. It has a lot a lot of you know uh, Catholic allegory to it. Yes. I was just gonna say I almost fell off my recliner two weeks ago. Um, I was scrolling through the movies to see what was on. You know, right. I expected all the secular movies. No, this year. Which is an outstanding movie, and it's set in uh, a convent during Vatican II when mm -hmm. um, the decisions were made to change uh, the way cloister nuns went about their, their routine. And that's when they lost the habits and they started wearing regular street clothes. And it's a very moving movie to, to see uh, the reaction of the nuns who had been living, who chose to live this lifestyle. Right. And, and right. You know, I, I remember, I lived through Vatican II, giving my age away, and I can remember the excitement of a lot of sisters to not have to wear the habit anymore, and I thought, wow, that's refreshing. But after watching this movie, I was crying, crying for the, the nuns who had to give up their lifestyle. Right. And, right. and they felt like their role within the church was being diminished mm -hmm. because they were all of a sudden, they were told in the letter from the cardinal the bishop that they were no longer or near where the priest or they were equal to anybody in the parish. Right. And that was right. the love of it. Right, right. But it's a very powerful movie. What was the name? Novitiate. Novitiate. Yeah. And it's on cable right now. Just I, I yeah. almost, like I said, I almost fell off my chair. <laughs> so you recommend that movie? I haven't seen it, but I've seen the trailer and it looked like something I might. It's you know. beautifully done. Okay. It's very moving. It's powerful. And you'll cry for the nuns. <laughs> uh, another movie that came out recently, it's more, more of a Christian setting, not Catholic, but uh, First Reformed. Has anybody seen that? Um, Ethan Hawke. It came out maybe last year or something like that. I was very, very um, eager to watch it because it, it's basically the story of a priest 
who meets a young man who is troubled because of the way we are destroying the environment. And the priest is changed, a priest, a minister, I'm, I'm using the wrong terminology here. He is changed by the encounter with this man. And I thought that was a very interesting thing to do, but the movie just falls apart at the end. It's amazing how you know everything goes well and the ending just, I was like, I don't even want to review this movie anymore because it's, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know, it just falls apart at the end. But watch it, it's, it's you know, first reformed. First Reformed, yeah, it's the name of the of the church. Uh, Ethan Hawke is the uh, you know the uh, protagonist. Uh, more comments? Yes. I, I was curious. Uh, mm -hmm. You said you see a lot of foreign films, and different countries probably have different moral viewpoints. And you know, the U.S. Right. films tend to memorize you know, lots of violence and everything. Do you have a favorite right. country that you can see films coming from, like out of Europe or South America or Mexico? I, there are many, many movies that I watch uh, from Japan, but, uh, you know, not a lot of outward Catholic content there, but, uh, you know, my, my favorite cinema is probably Japanese cinema. I watch a lot of uh, French film, and you see a lot of Catholic content there. The director, Robert Bresson, is great, great. Uh, he is, everything that you see in a Hollywood movie, he does the complete opposite. Sometimes he tries your patience a little bit, and these are old movies. Okay, I, I like movies from you know from the black and white times and, and all that. I don't watch that many new films. Now I do a little bit more because I'm reviewing them, but I, I like to travel to the past with films. And then uh, in terms of Latin America, of course, I uh, watch movies from Argentina because once again, to me, that's a way of going back to the to the past. I watch a lot of Argentinian movies from the 80s. They're awful, but I can see the places that I grew up in and all that kind of stuff. To me, that's like, you know when people say, I wish somebody would invent the time machine? To me, the time machine was already invented. It's the cinema. You just sit there and just let it, you know, transport you. So those are, um, those are the, I, I think, you know, Japanese, French, and, uh, and Argentinian. Yes? Um, I really like Bollywood mm -hmm. uh, It's very refreshing to, to add to that, to watch films from uh, outside of Hollywood. That's something I always tell people. Get outside of the Hollywood system, okay? Um, to me, a very important year was 2008, which is when I started to study at U of H. They had a huge collection of films from all over the world in their library. And that was the year that I discovered cinema. Uh, I was constantly going to the library and getting films from there, from the great filmmakers, you know, Ingmar Bergman, uh, Yasujiro Osu from Japan, Kurosawa, so many, so many of them. And to me that was like, it just opened my mind. It's like learning another language. It, it changes your brain to finally see, you know, these other, um, other structures, you know, and you realize, wow, Hollywood is making the same film all over, you know, over and over again. This is so much different. It's so refreshing to see a different thing and, and not to be, 
I want to say insulted the way Hollywood insults you sometimes, you know, with the same story, the same formulas over and over again, you know, made by a, a marketing team or something like that. This is art, you know. But at first, you have to get used to that because the pace is different, you know. They don't all have happy endings, you know. Sometimes you have to be ready for that. So there was a point after I started looking at all these films where I could not watch a Hollywood film because I was so bored by it. I was like, I already know what's going to happen. I just can't do this anymore. But then I, I you know, started watching independent film and went back to Hollywood with a critical eye, and, and that helped me to digest these films a little bit better. Are you, uh, are you familiar with Babette's Feast? No, no. Well, the, re the reason I just read is uh, Pope Francis' favorite film. It's a oh, yes. film. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah, actually, yes. <laughs> Yes. What What do you think about it? Is it? Oh, it's wonderful. I saw it probably ten years ago. The okay. First time. Okay. And but it's a secular. It's Danish, but it has English subtitles. Right. It's, it's just beautiful. But to your point of a secular film that really is successful. Right. Yes, yes. And you can see why, right? It's a, it's a very, it has Pope Francis written all over it. Babette's Feast, it's a Danish film. It's based on a short story by Isaac Dinesen. Um, so very, very good, uh, very good film. Yeah, it's about giving, right? If you have to say, you know, sacrifice, sacrifice. yeah, yeah. So as, as far as you can say that a movie is about a thing or, or another, that's, that's the, main, the main topic here. Yes, other, yes. I think it's, uh, anybody has? Right. Right, I think, yeah, I think that, that, that is the main reason. It's like, it becomes a product. And so, you know, you, as when you buy something else, you don't want to be dissatisfied. And so that is something that, in a sense, it gives you, it gives you more hope and all that, it's all more, more cheerful. And if you watch independent film from here, from the US, they are the anti-Hollywood. And there are many, many bleak, you know, independent films because they say, well, Hollywood does this, we're going to do the complete opposite. And we have sad endings, like the Florida Project. The Florida Project does not end on a, on a positive note because it's an independent film and it goes against the, the discourse of, of Hollywood, you know, so, yeah, I can't think of, of other, you know, reasons why, why they do that. I think it's basically Hollywood is about, we have found the formula that sells and that gives us money. Why are we going to get out of that formula if it works for our purposes? Whereas more poetic filmmaking is more about producing a work of art, you know. Uh, so that's what you get with um, international cinema most of the time. Because it's not controlled by this machine, right? So I think that, that, that is a great answer, yeah, all, all of those, yeah. But not just to have the end, effects. I'm so tired of all the special effects. I want mm -hmm. a story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so often you've got all these effects, but, but then you, after the movie's over, you're, you're asking yourself, what was it really about? Right, right. And there are, yeah, and there are many plot holes because they think as long as we have effects to keep the people interested, 
you know, they're not going to notice the, the plot holes. There was, uh, I think it was Sean Penn in one of his um, speeches, I think it was given an award or something like that. He said, this is Hollywood. If you put uh, one idea into a film, it's not going to work. <laughs> That's a little bit extreme. It's a little bit extreme because there are always ideas in, in films. But the point he's making is that they don't want serious stuff there. You know, we want to just sit down and kill two hours of our lives. You know, here you have the happy ending. That's it, you know. So uh, I always urge people, look, look beyond Hollywood. The point of this talk was to see how even in, in Hollywood and in popular films we can find all these, uh, all these issues. But I always say, you know, just try to explore other, other cinema because there's a lot to be found there and, and it's very rewarding. Yes. Are there are there places where uh, the critics, even yourself, where you can can get more information on films that are more worth seeing? That that is a great. Or where you can get a true, you know, description of yeah, this film is very entertaining, but has no redeeming value beyond that. Right. Yes, it's very entertaining, but no story or whatever. Right. Right. Or a really true good review. I mean, I. Right, right. That's yeah. that's true. That's true. And that is a question that, that I often get. Where do I start? Right. With, Where do you start? Yeah, with cinema. If you go to the cinema, uh, you know, to the closest one, you're going to find the same movies that you find all over the place. It's always going to be the same popular movies that are coming out. The cinemas control that. Okay. They're not going to show you the independent films. In order to see independent films, you have to go to the MFA, for instance, the Museum of Fine Arts. You have to go to the River Oaks Theater. They always show independent films, but it's a very, very limited, very small, um, you know, uh, very small audience. So what I say is, you know, look for the look for the critics, right? For for the critics like Roger Ebert, what are the films that they consider great? He has a list of great films, and that is a great way to start because the wonderful thing about film is that one of them leads you to another. That's what I always say. It doesn't really matter where you start. Just you know, read uh, film criticism or maybe an introduction to film, a history of cinema that touches upon the most important names, right? And once you start doing that, one film is going to lead you to another because that director is going to say, I was influenced by the work of so-and-so. And so you go, oh, let's check that out. And that's the way I did it. You know, I went to the library at, at U of H. I found all these great films and I started with one of them. Uh, and then, you know, just following the road. The Criterion Collection, uh, Basically, uh, uh, it's a, you know, uh, an institution that puts out these movies on DVD. They are expensive, but you can find them at many of the libraries. Uh, that is a good selection. There, there are many, uh, many questionable movies in, in the selection too, so you have to be careful about that if you don't want to be exposed to you know, awful things. And that's another thing that we have to be careful as critics, especially as Catholic critics, because some movies are directly ex extremely offensive. So what I do is I screen them, I, I go online and look information up to see uh, you know, if, if there's anything there that I don't want to see. You know? uh, so that's, that's one thing uh, also that I keep in mind all the time. Yes, any? Yeah, um, well, uh, the journal that I published them in is uh, the Chesterton Review. It's uh, devoted to the thought of G.K. Chesterton, so what I do as a film critic is 
ask myself, what would Chesterton say about this movie? So you read Chesterton, you find out a little bit about his worldview, and uh, that's what I do. So one thing you can do is, uh, the Chesterton review is not online, it's a subscription thing. But if anybody wants to read uh, some of the reviews that I've written, just give me your email uh, address and I'll send them to you. I usually put two films together and compare and contrast them, two films that have you know, things in common. The last one was Lady Bird and The Florida Project. So I put those two together. The next one that still hasn't come out is on two foreign films. The Square, which is a Swedish film, very strange, very interesting. And um, The Insult, which is a Lib Lebanese film. So if anybody's interested, just you know, give me your email address and I'll send them to you so that you don't have to you know, uh, go outside and, and get the uh, subscription and everything. Yes? I was also going to say, the film is why catechesis is so critical with our youth. The movies, they're saying, we're worried about bleeping out one or two words. You should see what they're watching. I teach a high school psych 101 class occasionally. Right. And some of the contributions the students are referring to movies, and trust me, there, there aren't many that escape them. And it's scary. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, uh, it's open. Yeah. Everybody gets access to these things. And that's why we have the rating system, and we protect people, because we think that these things are, you know, are dangerous in a way. And not just the Hollywood rating system, but the, the rating system within the Catholic Church. For example, yes. the Catholic Herald, when you see the, the movies, um, the movies rated and all, then there's a rating system. Absolutely. So look for that in the Catholic Herald. It, it gives you a, a different, you know, because sometimes you see things in PG-13 movies that you're like, I, I would put that in an R rating, you know, uh, as a Catholic. You know, it's so ironic we mentioned this. I was talking, before we started this evening, I was mentioning another um, abortion movie that's coming out, and the mm -hmm. title has the name Abby in it. You may have seen it already. Yes, what's the... Yeah, Abby. Yes, yes. But like, what's it? it's rated R, and you have to be 17 or older legally to watch the movie, mm -hmm. but yet young girls, younger than that, can have an abortion without parental approval. Now... The, the system is, is often has ridiculous things like that, yeah. There was a, a movie a long time ago, I can't remember which one it was, but um, it was kind of a racy movie, but, but mainstream, okay? And one of the actresses was so young that she could not go watch the movie that she had starred in. Uh, I, I think it was Lolita or one of those movies, you know, they didn't let her into a cinema. She's like, you know, I, I starred in this movie, I, I'm in the movie, but I can go see it because I'm too young. Because ridiculous things like that that happen all the time. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And we have some announcements, right?